Uh, we're going to spend some time on it throughout uh, September and on into October, and uh, so just kind of sit back and relax and, and enjoy this. This is a little bit of a different kind of a series than we do a lot of times here at Generations. We have done these kind of series before where we actually kind of go through kind of verse by verse. We're going to walk through this entire book here. Um, in, in sort of church world, they call this expository preaching. Um, so we don't do that a whole lot here, but we have done it. We've gone through Ruth and uh, we've gone through James and Revelation before. But uh, so expository preaching is good. It's, it's, it's a chance for us to look in the word and really dig in and understand what the author is trying to say and what the Holy Spirit is trying to say, because we get to read the scriptures in context, right? And some churches, in fact, as opposed to uh, topical preaching, you know, which is like we'll do a series like we just did on the seven deadly sins or on a subject, or maybe we'll talk about faith or, we'll, you know, or how to have a great marriage or something like that. Um, expository preaching, the topic itself is the scripture. That is the topic. That is what we're, we're letting it speak to us. Now, some churches uh, say that that's the only kind of preaching you should do. I've heard, you know, some churches only do expository type uh, preaching or exegetical preaching. You might hear, you know, super Christians say that word. Um, uh, they've been to seminary when they use that word. But, uh, and, and some, some churches only do that. But uh, we, we do them both. Because we see in the Word that that's how people learn both ways, too. Um, I think it's kind of funny. Some people who say you only should preach verse by verse through Scripture, the, the sermons that we actually have in the Bible are not actually that way. You know, Jesus didn't gather everybody on the hillside and say, everybody open your scrolls to Leviticus 1. Here we go. No, he got down. What did he talk about? He talked about things like birds and pearls and fishermen, right? You know? And so uh, Paul's the same way. These, uh, these scriptures that we're actually going to be going through, he is sharing from his heart. He's sharing from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that's the kind of preaching we see actually in the Word. So it's okay to preach that way too. But this is going to be good. We're going to be going through Philippians. Philippians is a relatively short book. It's four chapters, 104 verses. Um, you know, if you want to get ahead, I encourage you to read uh, Philippians throughout the week. It's an e- you can read through the entire book, you know, in about 30 minutes. Um, it's very, very good. Uh, it was written, we believe, about 62 AD or so. So literally just a couple of decades after Jesus Christ himself was walking this earth, Paul wrote this letter. Philippians is considered a letter. Uh, again, the religious word for that is epistle. In the New Testament, there's a couple of different kinds of books. There's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell about the life of Jesus. Um, there's also Acts, which is kind of a sequel to Luke. Um, Luke wrote both of those. Um, but Acts tells more about the church, the birth of the church, and how it exploded, and it was just wonderful. And then we get into the epistles, which are these letters so these aren't just writings where somebody was just sitting down at their, you know, with a cup, cup of coffee and the typewriter and like just, you know, riffing on whatever philosophy they were coming up with and just, you know, hoping to get it published someday. Um, these were actual letters from a person to people. So it's very personal. These letters are personal. And most of the time these are written to churches. And Philippians is no different. Philippians uh, is one of the most personal letters that Paul wrote. And just... 
To be honest, it's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. It's one of my favorite of, of all his letters. It's, it's joyful in nature. It doesn't, it's one of the few that doesn't actually harshly rebuke the, conver, uh, the congregation that he's preaching to. Uh, you know, the Philippians, they, they had it going on pretty well. And um, apparently these guys had a really special relationship with Paul. He shows his gratitude, immense gratitude towards this church. And so the overarching themes as we go through Philippians uh, are, are joy and also suffering, but joy in the suffering. It's some amazing things he has to say. Paul writes this book from a place of immense suffering, and he's actually in prison as he writes this. It's considered one of the prison letters, and yet he doesn't uh, just endure prison. He finds a way to thrive in it. It's an amazing thing as we're going to see. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the early leaders of the church, like I said, just a couple of decades after Jesus walked the earth, Paul spent a lot of time in prison. Uh, you know, he was, he was really high up in the echelon of the, the Jewish community and the Jewish uh, religious order. And, you know, he thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians. And then, you know, the, the story one day, he has this encounter on the road to Damascus with Jesus. And Jesus is like, why are you persecuting my people? And Paul said, sorry, I had that all backwards. I'll, I'll fix that. And so he, he gets totally changed and becomes this evangelist for Christ. And, uh, and so because of that, that's not a popular thing to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. So he spends a lot of time in prison. And he, even in these times in prison, when you read his letters, he always carries this mentality that like, this, this is a great opportunity. These times in prison, this is an amazing opportunity for me to do something, something good. Something amazing could happen here. Whenever he's beaten, uh, he brings that negative circumstance. He brings to that this mindset, this internal wiring that he has with a view for good possibilities. I want to have that. Do you want to have that? I want to have that. When he's writing this letter, he's chained up. At some point, at some point, he's going to get killed. That's where this is headed. He's, he's going to get killed. He doesn't know if it's this time or another time, but he's, he's headed there. In this letter, he's in prison, and most historians believe it's, it's in Rome. And when he's in prison, he thinks to himself, what a wonderful opportunity to get some writing done. <laughs> right? I've been meaning to write those Philippians. Yeah? And so he gets a lot of these opportunities these, in these prison letters. It's an amazing mentality I want to tap into. I really do. I want to feel what it's like when, when I have my liberty taken away unjustly to just be able to say, wow, there's an opportunity here waiting to be discovered. Wouldn't that be an incredible mindset? I want to tap into that. And so I, I need that in so many areas of my life because I, I whine, I complain way too much. So I need the mindset of Paul here. And understand as we're reading this, this isn't just Paul's like natural personality. He wasn't just born a really sunny person, right? Like some people, well, they're just naturally sunny. It's not like his friends are going, Paul, oh yeah, he's just always being that way. No, Paul was this super hyper uptight religious assassin, <laughs> right? Who killed Christians for a living before getting saved. This was Paul. And he talks about it, how I was, right? So Paul had something very miraculous happen to it. And he refers to it in some of his letters as the fruit of the Spirit. In this letter, as we're going to read today, he refers to it as the fruit of righteousness. It's the fruit. He says the more you get closer to Jesus, the more of this kind of fruit you'll see in your life. 
the more you get closer to Jesus, to learn about him, to know him more. What happens when you know him more? You get to trust him more. The better you know him, the better you trust him. Hallelujah. So are you guys ready to dive into Philippians? You guys ready? Okay, then turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Gotcha. Just kidding. Acts 16. Just want to take one second. We get this really cool opportunity in the Bible to see the actual birth of the church in Philippi. Paul's, Paul had been planting churches all around what's now Turkey, the modern era, uh, region of Turkey. And in Acts 16, verse 9, he's been into these other cities, Corinth and, and Ephesus and these guys. And during the night, Paul had a vision from a man of Macedonia. We'll look at a map in just a second. A man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. How cool is that? He has this vision of a guy asking him to come help. After Paul sees the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now remember, this is Luke uh, telling this story. He, he wrote Acts. From, uh, let's see, verse 11. There we go. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight from Samothrace. And at the same day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. The story from here gets really interesting. Here's a little picture just to help us keep our bearings. If over on the right is Macedonia. That, that whole area there you would, is modern Greece. We see Greece, and up there where it kind of turns into Thracia up there, that would be uh, turning into modern Turkey. So, so Philippi is kind of right there on the, uh, close to the border uh, where we would now have Greece and Turkey. And then you can kind of see the distance over to Rome. There's the big boot of Italy there. And... Um, and the distance there is a long ways as it is, but it's even made worse by the, the terrain. The travel between these two cities would be very treacherous. You see all the little nooks and crannies of the coastline there, just literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of shipwrecks along these bays, the Aegean Sea there. So it would have been treacherous to travel between them. And if you tried to take the land route, you could try that, but you're very likely to get robbed and probably killed. So... Either way uh, is a real treat, traveling from Philippi to uh, Rome, and that'll become important later. But the story there in Philippi, if you go with Acts and read the rest of that, it's very interesting. In our deeper small group, we'll probably get more into this. But just to summarize, when they get there, they meet a woman named Lydia. She's a businesswoman. So that's a very unusual thing for that era and that culture, a businesswoman. It says that she's the head of her household. That's a very unusual thing. You know, it's a very man-oriented culture here. (laughs) Businesswoman, head of the household. They meet her. And it calls her a worshiper of God. She didn't know Jesus, but she was a worshiper of God. And they told her about Jesus. She gets saved. She gets baptized. Her whole household gets baptized and saved. And uh, from there, just the church in Philippi explodes. And it even has some interesting, uh, I can't go all into it now, but it has some interesting uh, commentary where they, they, they could, they did, there was no synagogue for them to meet in. So they were meeting by the river. And that usually means because there wasn't enough men in the church. And so the women were constituted the church and they would meet by the, by the river. So here's a church, this amazing church, led basically by this amazing, powerful business woman. Let's hear it for the ladies of Philippi. All right. Yeah. Girl power. So that's what's going on there. Now, if you're ready, let's dive into Philippians. You ready? Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. Now, as, you, as you, we read through this, 
Paul mentions himself a couple times, so he definitely establishes he's the author. And he's here with Timothy. He's saying the two of us together. He presents himself as his equal partner with Timothy, which I think is really cool. Now, it's possible that Timothy was in prison with him, but what we believe is that more than likely, uh, he, Timothy was the one who was delegated to help take care of Paul while in prison. Let me just give you a quick uh, note about prison life, first century prisons, especially in Rome. They were set up very uniquely. They're not like our prisons. They're set up and they're very efficient, these prisons. If you were in prison in Rome, they didn't feed you. They didn't feed you. They, they gave you a prison cell, which was really nice of them, but they didn't feed you or take care of you. So your basic needs were not taken care of by the establishment. Your needs were taken care of by friends and family. They would come and give you food. They would come and give you writing implements to, to write something with. But they, your, your, your survival, your very survival depended on someone taking care of you from outside. So more on this later. So Paul in this letter, he's thanking the Philippians for their financial support. He's, they're helping to keep him alive. They're keeping him fed and getting him the stuff so he can write these letters. What we also know from this letter and other letters is that very often he is actually chained, physically chained between one or more of these Praetorian guards of, of Rome. So that's no fun, right? It's not like he's getting basketball time out in the courtyard. He's chained between guards. Uh, but Paul, as we're going to see, especially next week, he even talks about being chained between these guards like, oh, this is cool, right? He does. He's like, once again, pagans are being brought to me, and they can't get away. <laughs> this, is, this is Paul's mentality. You can see this over and over, right? How awesome. You see, he just completely flips the scenario around constantly. So you can just see him. He's writing, and he's like reading it out loud. Hey, you know, uh, Maximus, what do you think of this? You know, like, let me tell you about, let me tell you, I'm writing this about Jesus. What do you think of this? You know, and uh, so it's an amazing thing. Um, so Paul, he loves this setup. He says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Here he says, holy people. That's the word referring to saints. Here's a good reminder that to be a saint is to be a Christian, right? There's not any elitism going on here. There's not some kind of special elite status in the church. Paul calls all Christians saints, holy ones, right? People set apart for a special purpose, right? There is not a New Testament concept of this idea of elite saints, it's just not there. It's just not there. there are no it's not like there's regular Christians and then you can graduate to become a saint. It's not there. Everyone's a saint. Everyone's a holy one set apart for a special purpose. And leadership is important. Leadership's important. Structure's good. But ultimately, you see, the church is a family. We're a body. We're a family. There, there are no elites in the church, but one, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, right? He, he is the elite. So Paul's a leader, but he's a servant and a brother of all. And here's what Paul wants us to know, I think, here, that we are all, first and foremost, brothers and sisters. We are all, first and foremost, brothers and sisters. Now, we all have different gifts. We have different tasks, different callings, roles that we play, functions, uh, to keep the family healthy and functional, right? Just like you do in your home, right? Everybody has a different role to play. But no one task is better than the other. We, we, need to, we need to be able to trust our leaders to lead. That is true. But hopefully we can trust them because we have a connection with them, first and foremost, as brothers and sisters, right? 
first and foremost. And so that's, that's the idea. Rather than placing them on a pedestal that separates them from the congregation, we're brothers and sisters. We're all fulfilling our roles that God gives us. A couple other things to notice here. <clears throat> he, talk, he mentions overseers. Uh, overseers and pastors often in his letters are sort of interchangeable. Um, and then he mentions deacons. This is an interesting word. It's actually from back in the ancient world. This is from the bartending world. Deacons. These guys were table waiters. They looked after filling up other people's glasses. This is where the word deacon. And so, you know, basically a deacon was someone who said, how can I serve you? Right? How can I serve you? That's, a, that's the word used here for church service and ministry. How cool is that? Right? So whatever we're doing, whatever role we're functioning in, we are to be other-centered. We're serving each other. That is what Paul wants us to know. In verse 2, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Grace and peace. This is loaded with meaning for Paul. Now, grace back then was a traditional Gentile greeting. They would, they would greet each other with grace. The, the Greek word is that charis, as in charismatic. And so charis, Paul mixes this Gentile greeting of grace with the traditional Jewish greeting of peace, right? In Hebrew, they would say shalom to each other. This, so he's mixing this Jew and Gentile. He's showing Jew and Gentile, this oneness here. And the language, constantly he's expressing this exciting new unity, this oneness, this unity. Yeah, that's his expectation for the New Testament church, his expectation for us, this radical unity. Hallelujah. And so Paul uses this greeting quite often. If you go back and you look at uh, a lot of his different uh, letters, Romans, if you look at Romans 1, how does he start that out? He says, grace and peace to you. In 1 Corinthians, he says, grace and peace. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Philemon, all of these, he, everything he does, he begins this way with grace and peace. Grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is, grace is that amazing divine joy. It's acceptance. It's a favor done without expectation of return, right? Grace. Grace. It's a gift. The free expression of the love of God, that is his grace. And then peace. The Greek word here is erine, and peace is this idea of harmony. Harmony, every kind of good. The Jews would say peace is nothing missing, nothing broken. Peace. What if every situation we walked into, we stopped. Before we entered the room, we stopped. We took a beat and called grace and peace into the situation. Grace and peace. What if every encounter that we had with other people, whoever we were about to meet, flowed from grace and peace right from the beginning, right? And we're not forming a new legalism like this is how you have to, these are the words you have to say, but what if this was the attitude that we greeted each other with? What if every person, whoever it was, flowed from this attitude, okay, grace and peace I wish upon you? What if everything were soaked in these two concepts of grace and peace to have this for our enemies, for our neighbors who need it the most? Well, well, that would change the world pretty much, right? See, I don't know about you, but I need grace and peace. I need people to speak this to me. I need to be reminded of it. And Paul says something very revolutionary. He's, Paul's a good writer. He's, 
you know, he's a good Jewish writer, so he's, the things he says is just soaked in this sort of subtlety, and it's got layers to it. He says, God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's taken off, there's this Old, Old Testament phrase they would commonly say, which was, our Lord God. Our Lord God, which is this combination of Adonai and Yahweh. Our Lord God, or Yahweh and Adonai. Paul spreads these out now. And so he says, now God is identified as Father, and now Jesus as Lord. So our Lord God becomes Jesus Lord, right? Our Lord Jesus. And the Father is God. So Paul's plainly showing us here that Jesus reveals an aspect of God. All right? Verse 3. I thank My God, every time I remember you, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he says, my God, there's a personalness here, right? Because gratitude is personal, right? Did you know that? Someone is always on the receiving end of your gratitude. Just like we said a week or two ago, we were talking about faith. Faith is always faith in a person, right? It's not faith in an idea. It's faith in a person. Gratitude is the same way. Gratitude is always personal. It's faith. It's gratitude in a person. He says, I always pray with joy because joy is just the central theme. Uh, even though Paul writes from this place of suffering, he, he expresses joy and encourages joy about 16 times in this letter in some form or another. He's relentless in his joy. He says, because of your partnership, now, partnership, this is where we're going to uh, talk about a little bit about today. Because partnership is a really dominant, is another dominant theme of this letter as well as joy. Partnership. We have the privilege, you and I do, of partnering with God. And we also have a pr- the privilege of partnering with each other, right? To serve our world. We partner with each other. And he says, from day one, you've been partners with me. We're doing this thing together. Now, this word in the Greek, some of you have probably heard of this word. It's koinonia. Koinonia. And it's often translated, when you hear about koinonia, you hear it translated as, as fellowship. Fellowship kind of, you know, and it sounds like this sort of nice, fuzzy, warm, you know, we're hanging out over the potato salad fellowship. Koinonia, you know, that's what we're doing here. But really, that's only part of the word because it's used in a very specific way in Paul's day. In Paul's day, it's very specific. In the context, it's a business term. Koinonia is a business term. It's, it's, a, it's a financial term. It means business partners, business partners. And that's how it was used in the New Testament until the, until the church started adopting it. So it's very interesting. It goes way beyond just fellowship. So, so fellowship is important, but Paul is saying, wait, guys, we're called to be on mission. It's not just about fellowship, but we're on mission, right? We're missional. We're partnered to do something. It's not just facing each other this way in fellowship, but rather, we're, we're this way. We're this way facing something else. We're on mission. We have a mission, which when you think about it, it's beyond fellowship. It becomes relationship, right? That's what koinonia is. It's relationship. It's a shared mission, which is what relationship is. We have a shared mission. And he says we're not just here to, to pass the time passively, we have a gospel mission. We're, we're sustaining, we're here building something sustainable here. And verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Ah, oh, this is so good. I mean, you can, spend, you can spend a couple of days just talking about this verse. It's so good. Carry it to completion, that he will perfect it. He will carry it to completion. Some of your translations might say perfect. He will make it perfect. This is a promise that God will play his part. We have a promise 
the God who began a good work in you, in his grace and in his mercy, he will finish what he starts. Hallelujah. God will complete what he's promised to complete. But remember what we just talked about. We're partners. So we have a role to play, right? We're not just sitting back and like, okay, we're saved, so we're letting God do everything. We're partners with God and with each other, right? Paul is partnered with Timothy. He's partnered with uh, the church in Philippi. As we say, we're going to see uh, in a few moments, it, he says that we're partners in grace even. Partners in grace. Hmm. So there's this partnership, and it's vertical, it's horizontal. God does his part, but it doesn't mean we don't do anything. Because faith isn't passive. Faith isn't passive. Sovereignty, his sovereignty, never means that you are pointless in the equation, that you have no role to play. That's never what it means. It means he is in charge of the relationship. That is God's sovereignty. He is in charge of the relationship. But you have a role to play, and we can depend on him to see it through. He'll never give up on us. Isn't that good? He never gives up. So Paul does another clever thing here. He says, until the day of Christ Jesus. Again, he's sort of, he's sort of hinting at this Old Testament language. In the Old Testament, uh, they often would refer to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, meaning the final day of reckoning, judgment, right? And Paul takes this good Jewish concept, the day of the Lord, and he weaves it, and he weaves it with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He keeps allowing these sort of strict categories to bleed together. You know, he, he's not like creating a flow chart for us of the Trinity, exactly. But what he's doing, he's just showing us this picture of Jesus Christ, the living, visible Messiah who shows us the heart of God. Amen? Now, he's talked about his joy and his confidence in them. And he says in verse 7, he says, and you know, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. So when he says about feel here, this is this word phineo, it, it's, it's will, emotions, it's conscience, it's, it's not just fleeting feelings, it's really deep. Paul says we're partners. You're in my heart, whether I'm in chains or whether I'm out there preaching. For Paul, the mission stays the same. You understand? For Paul, the mission stays the same. Whether I'm preaching or in chains, that doesn't matter to him, right? That's like, he, he's like a house that's connected to the stone underneath, the rock, right? The, there might be a storm or there might not be a storm, but that doesn't change my foundation. My mission is unshakable, amen? He's anchored to the rock. And so then he says defending and confirming. These are two aspects of proclaiming the gospel. Defending, we would say today it's kind of like testifying or making an argument uh, with words and logic, you know, um, sort of like a C.S. Lewis type person. That would be a person who's, you know, an apologist who, who can defend with logic. Or today, Ravi Zachariah, one of those great uh, defenders of the faith. And, and confirming is actions that show what we're talking about. So we talk about the gospel, def defending it, and then confirming as we show what we're talking about. We're called to do both. And he says, all of you share. All of you are partners. This, this word, this phrase here, he's, it's, it's, it's this one word. It's literally fellow partakers of grace. And here he uses a really strange word. He doesn't just say koinonia. He says sugkoinonia. It's like this, it's like from the school of redundancy school. It's, it means like partnering kind of partners, right? We are together. We're co-partners reemphasizing this togetherness in a word that already means togetherness, right? 
So in, in the verse 8, he goes on to say, God can testify, literally, as God is my witness. He's saying, as God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Oh, this word, affection. This is a fun one in Greek, all right? We're, we're going to learn a little Greek word this morning, all right? This word affection, in the Greek, it's splagnon, okay? Splagnon. We're going to say it all together. You ready? One, two, three. Splagnon, right? Splagnon. And th- th- what's great about it is this word, it means bowels or intestines, right? It's very descriptive, right? Splagnon. It's really good if you say it like Sean Connery, splagnon, right? <laughs> Bowels or intestines. So wait a minute. So I long for all you with the bowels of Christ Jesus. Here's, here's the deal. In ancient times, in, these, in this era, in this culture, for them, it wasn't the heart where you felt emotions. You know, like we say, oh, I, f- I have you in my heart. They, that, that's more of a romantic concept. It came later, hundreds of years later. But to them, the guts, the bowels, was where you felt emotion. So this is the splagnon where you felt it, right? And so in their mind, in their sort of physical geography, you think with your mind, and you feel it in your guts, and both come together through the heart to make a choice. It's in the heart where we make the choice. We think it here, we feel it here, then we make our choice here. So I I just love the geography of the picture, right? Literally, I long for you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Flannel graph that. So (laughs) he's saying, I'm so aligned with the mind of Christ here, which he'll speak about throughout this letter, the mind of Christ. He goes, now I feel the feelings of Christ, and that this is becoming Christ-like. This is what it's like. It's not just thinking about things. It's not just getting pure doctrine. It's not just thinking good thoughts about people. It's feeling the way Jesus feels toward people, having his compassion for people. You get that? And he says, which sounds strange to us, he's like, even my guts are Christ-like, is what Paul's saying, right? I feel the feelings that Christ feels for you. You know, religion is, is depressingly good at taking out human emotions from the equation, kind of sterilizing them till there's nothing left down there, right? Because we get consumed with achieving right doctrine, and doctrine's important, it's good, right theology, learning lots of information, but there's a complete package in God's kingdom. When you meet someone who is truly feel, filled with Christ, and you know these people, right? When I, have, when I get to have dinner or something with somebody who's in some kind of a ministry where, they get to, where they're helping people, and you talk to them a little bit, they don't, you can tell they don't just know stuff. They don't just know stuff. They are overcome with compassion for people in a way that Jesus was. It's a way that, that always convicts me, always just leaves me realizing, oh, God, I, I need to feel more what you feel, right? You know those people. Do you notice a recurring phrase in verse 7 and 8? He says, all of you, three times, three times, all of you, all of you. It raises all sorts of questions. Remember, he's talking to the entire church. He's writing this letter to be read aloud to this entire, the entire church of Philippi. And he says, God can testify how I long with my splagnon for all of you. Really? All of you? All of them? 
I mean, what about the annoying ones? <laughs> right? What about those guys that are, they're hard to love, right? And we don't have any in this church, but you know, there's, you know, some places. <laughs> what about those people, you know, the, what about the ones that, oh, they just complain over and over and they tell the same story every time, right? They have that habit that drives everybody crazy, right? All of you? I long for all of you? Something tells me that the church in Philippi was not somehow magically different from our church or from any other church, right? I don't believe that Philippi was just magically populated by like perfect, awesome hipsters who just like all listened to the great music and all appreciated good coffee, you know. I don't think that church was just magically absent of, you know, sort of the embarrassing old Uncle Bob that, you know, made everybody feel awkward in small group because he said something kind of racist all the time, you know. (laughs) That guy. (laughs) Where you going, ooh. Have a feeling this church was probably like our church and everybody else. I bet there were people there who were a joy to be around, very inspirational. And I bet there were people there who some folks just found it really hard to be around. So is Paul serious? Is he long for all of them? Or is this just religiously polite talk? Does he really love all of them? I find this hard because let's face it, some people are hard to love. Some people grade on us, right? They're just, maybe, maybe there's nothing wrong with them. There's just that different personality. You ever find your diametric opposite in the world, <laughs> right? You're just like, wow, that person can be more unlike me, <laughs> right? Something, they just get under your skin. Their sense of humor is on a different wavelength. Or worse, they don't have one, <laughs> right? My, my friend calls them his sandpaper people. They're sandpaper in his life, right? They smooth them out. So for Paul, there's something here, there's something going on that allows him to write with apparently a straight face, I really (laughs) deeply love all of you, but I love you with this particular kind of love. It's agape love, he says, that's shaped by the power of Christ. Oh man, what would it be like to have something going on inside of us, something so powerful, so transforming, So mind-altering, this relentless joy that even the most irritating people you know, you could say to them, I have a love for you. It's a love of Christ that I feel down into my guts. I have a love for you. And actually mean it. To look at everyone, everyone, and wish them grace and peace. Oh, what would it mean? What would that look like? to be able to feel deep in your splagnon a love for that person who's normally just like your kryptonite. Well, obviously, if this would happen, the world would change. Am I right? The world would change. I mean, if you could love your enemies and be so radically transformed inside, it would obviously affect how we dealt with everyone. It would change everything. Verse 9, and this is my prayer. Okay, what follows here is actually a prayer, and we're going to look at these last three verses, 9, 10, and 11. They're actually a prayer, uh, and we'll finish with this. So let's unpack this. It's kind of the culmination of this whole introduction and opening part of the letter. Remember, too, the original recipients of this letter would have heard it read aloud in their church service. So this is being read to them like Paul's talking to them. He says, that 
Your love may abound and more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern, that's approve and acknowledge, what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Boy, we don't write letters like this, (laughs) right? Oh, man, that your love may abound more and more. This word abound, it's this continual tense of the verb. It just means it keeps going. There's no limits to its growth. May your love grow and continue to grow. May your love today be more than it was yesterday. And tomorrow, may your love be more than it is today. That's this abounding love. It's, it's, it's not static. It keeps growing. And then he says, in knowledge and depth of insight... Now, knowledge is this word. It's epigonesis. It's, a, it's this word. It's a particular kind of knowledge. It's not just head knowledge. It's not, not knowledge about something. It's not just like you know a lot of information about it or, you know, you know the ABCs and then you're all set. It's, it's this holistic idea of knowledge. One scholar put it this way. He said it's knowledge that comes from participation. It's not that you've learned about it. You've, you've experienced it. You've done it. You, you, it's knowledge from within, Right? Anybody ever play Guitar Hero on your Nintendo or something like that? Guitar Hero. Raise your hand if you ever played a Guitar Hero. Okay, we got some Guitar Hero heroes. All right. Guitar, for those of you who are uninitiated, Guitar Hero is a video game, and you take a plastic thing that's roughly shaped like a guitar that has these bright, shiny lights on it, and, and then you're watching a screen that has bright, shiny lights, and as the colors, different colors, blue, red, yellow, come up, you touch the corresponding, and by the end, you are like playing guitar, right? You are a guitar hero, and there's like, like festivals and contests and like tournaments all over the world for this silly thing, and you know, pe- people like spend hours and hours and hours on guitar hero, Right? When, if they spent that same amount of time actually playing a guitar, they could learn how to play like Derek, right? I guarantee you Derek hasn't spent 100 hours playing Guitar Hero, right? And he is a Guitar Hero, right? Oh, man. Amen. (laughs) So this is the idea between just kind of knowing about something and knowing the thing for real, knowing it, right? He says in knowledge, and then he says depth of insight. It's this really unique word. It's the only time in the entire Bible this word is used as esthesis. Depth of insight is very rare. One scholar called it keenly aware of the consequences of an action. The consequences. So it's knowledge related to what you do. So, may, so Paul's saying, may you not just know facts, but may it lead to esthesis, the ability to know what to do in situations. See, here's why this is important. Here's why this is important. This is having knowledge and understanding what to do in situations and having good judgment when things are morally ambiguous. Anybody ever live in some gray, experience gray areas in life? Yeah, that's life. It's messy. So we walk into these areas. There are things are things. The situation's murky. I'm not really. The Bible doesn't exactly. What are we? Right. So this is a thesis. You will know what the next right thing to do. What a blessing that would be to have, right? Because we encounter these situations. We live in a modern world, so we encounter situations. May this knowledge flow. And he says, and notice he says that your love may abound. So it's flowing from our love. That's important because knowledge is power, and so knowledge can be abused. 
So he says, no, we want knowledge and insight to flow from love. Paul prays that his friends in the church would grow in love and knowledge and discernment in order to embrace what is best. Some of your translations will say what is most excellent. What is best? Not just what is right versus what is evil, but what is best? What if, what if our ethics, that's the way we behave in the world, what if the way we behave in the world arose out of this love rather than just religious law? If it arose out of love, how would that even season our conversation today? The Old Testament talks a lot about wisdom. But see, Paul, or Jesus rather, Jesus comes and he steers that conversation into a philosophy of love. He steers its wisdom through a philosophy of love. So it's not just memorization of scripture or rules, but it's wisdom and discernment so we can know the heart of God. We can apply it to all sorts of circumstances, even those the Bible doesn't directly speak to. We gotta have that, right? As representatives of the kingdom, we've gotta understand the heart of God so we can, we can react to these situations, respond to these situations. It's not just about right and wrong, but what is best, what is most excellent. It's not a matter of, well, can I still do this and go to heaven, right? I mean, how much of it can I do before I'm sort of in trouble, <laughs> right? Can I get away with this? Is this, like, super bad or just sort of not so good, right? See, these thoughts really, and I, I, we're all guilty of them sometimes, but these thoughts are foreign to someone who really wants to follow Jesus, That's not the thought we were to have. You wouldn't ask that about your spouse. If someone asked you, how much can we flirt with someone other than our spouse? How much can we flirt? Well, it's it's not any one answer I would disagree with. I object to the entire question, (laughs) right? Because the law of love, it, it doesn't seek to push a boundary of morality. It seeks what is most excellent. What is most excellent? That's the law of love. So when we're living in tune with this law of love, it changes everything. It changes everything. Our our final verse, Paul calls it being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we've gone beyond, is it right? Is it like, super? okay, how far can I go? What can I do? And now we're asking a whole new question, and that is, what would love have me do? What would love have me do? And when we're filled with this fruit, it affects all of our situations. And when we find ourselves in situations where we're suffering, when we find ourselves in situations of personal suffering or the suffering of other people, now we see it as opportunities, opportunities for the light of God to shine brighter. Things look darker out there. Oh, God's going to shine even brighter, right? Because he has to, because light shines in the dark. We see it as opportunities for Christ to be glorified, right? Oh, well, this is an opportunity for God's power, his miraculous power to show up, right? For us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It's an opportunity. Everything that happens to us, positive or negative, we now can view as this strategic opportunity to advance the gospel. It's a whole different mindset, right? So here's where we start to tap into that, that mystery of being in tune with the suffering of others and yet filled with joy unspeakable. See, that sounds really strange, to be in tune with the suffering of others yet filled with joy unspeakable regardless of the circumstances. I'm ill? 
Hey, I can witness to people in the hospital. I'm in prison? Well, I'll get to write some letters and witness to the guards. Because it's all for the glory and praise of God. Paul lives in tune with the suffering, his own and others around him. But notice, it doesn't make him depressed. Because that's what we would expect. A person who's really in tune with suffering, they must just be like this all day. (laughs) Right? But he's not. On the contrary, he's beaten, he's thrown in prison, he's chained between guards, and he's full of joy. And if you're not sure how that's possible, how that, how that equation, how the both sides of that works out, then rejoice because that means there's still something to learn, right? There is still mystery in the universe for you to, to learn about if you're willing to seek it. So here's my question for you. Here's my question. Are you seeking the highest good or are you settling for less than best for what's allowable? Are you seeking the highest good? What's excellent? Are you settling for less than best for what's allowable? So here's what we can do next. Here's, here's what we can do as we walk out the door. On your own time this week, sit down, take some time, and give yourself an assessment in the different facets of your life. You have an inner world. You've got an, your relationship world. You've got the things that you do in these areas. Do some, some personal assessment in your friends, your family, your work, School, romance, health, entertainment, volunteering, evangelizing, your hobbies in these areas. Do a personal assessment. Be honest. How well do you fulfill Paul's prayer in Philippians 1, 9 through 11? And ask God about it. And think about the, what the next steps toward, toward health in each of these areas are. We'll, we'll work further into this in our deeper on Wednesday. But see, it's not about condemnation. We're not trying to condemn anybody. It's about asking God, Father, what do I need to change? How can I grow? Now, and this is a great opportunity to do this in partnership. We're in partnership, right? Koinonia, to do it in partnership with each other. It's a great opportunity to hold each other accountable. Ask someone to help you be aware right? Help me see my blind spots, right? And then say, and, and ask me about it again next week. Ask me how I'm doing on that thing. See, that is real fellowship. That is koinonia. It's partnership in the gospel. It's you applying the gospel to your own life, and then as you live it out, you live out that gospel more and more, you become God's show and tell for the world. Amen? And you'll start to understand the mystery of relentless joy. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, Lord, Paul's prayer in Philippians 1 is is a prayer that I want to apply to my own life. I want to grow in love. I want to grow in wisdom and knowledge and discernment so that I stop settling for just what's allowable, what I can get away with. I want to aim for what is best. Jesus, I want to live a life that thinks your thoughts and feels your feelings, feels your emotions toward other people. I pray, Lord God, for our church community this morning, for my brothers and sisters here, that we would be intentional about stepping out, engaging those around us who hurt. Help us to be in tune with the suffering of others. 
Thank you for allowing us to be part of a community, Lord God. Help us not to take that for granted. Thank you for not letting, letting us just, leaving us out on our own, leaving us isolated to fend for ourselves. I thank you, Father. We, we realize what we have and that we're filled with gratitude for that. And I pray that together we would live lives that give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward. If you need prayer for anything, I encourage you to come up and uh, ask these guys for prayer, and they will pray the prayer of faith with you and stand with you. Hallelujah. As we go, I just want to bless you today. May you continue to grow in love, grow in knowledge, grow in discernment, grow in wisdom. Hallelujah. May you think the thoughts of Jesus and feel the emotions of Jesus towards other people. And may you live lives that give him glory in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Have a wonderful day. We will see you guys later.